You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, and unafraid witness. Thank you for listening. We're gathered here this morning to lift high the name of Jesus Christ in worship. This is the purpose of why we're here today. It's also the purpose of why we exist to glory in the one who has risen from the grave, to find in him our great joy, our great delight, to worship the one who is worthy, to worship the one who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to worship the one who made himself nothing, who took the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men, To worship the one who, when he was found in human form, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're here this morning. We exist today to lift high Jesus Christ because God, this God, has highly exalted this Jesus and has bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're here today for that purpose. God, I pray that you would lead us to this place, please. If we're not already there, uh, the reality is, is maybe some of us have stood and we have sung five songs, but we're not there yet. But we need to be there. We need to be confronted again with the glory and the worth of the Lord Jesus Christ because apart from him in our lives, our lives do not make sense. Our lives lack its joy that it needs. Our lives lack this peace and contentment that we can find in him. So Lord, steady our hearts, please. Lift our hearts to you, Lord, please. I pray, God, now in this moment, right now in this room, that the spirit of the living God would be falling upon this place and that he would be filling us with a delight in the Lord Jesus, a worship for the Lord Jesus, that you be glorified in this room in each and every heart. We need you. I need you. Please, Lord, please minister to us now that we would see you again, that we would lift you high again. We pray this now in the name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. It's great to be here again with you guys and great to see you. Uh, My name is Craig Turnbull, if you missed that, and I get the joy of serving in Harvest Bible Chapel, Toronto, or Oakville. Uh, That's where I work. And uh, I also get the joy of being a part of uh, uh, seeing many of these churches launched and sent out. And uh, one of your elders this morning was praying about what God has done in Niagara in five years through Harvest Bible Chapel Niagara and how delighted I was to hear that and be reminded again of that. But it also reminds me of the times that for a great while, almost a year or so, that your pastor, Daryl Molyneux, uh, was in our church in, in Oakville and I had the privilege of getting to know him and getting to love him and appreciate him. And I got to tell you, I, I 
am a huge fan of your pastor. I love him so much. I appreciate his preaching so much. I love the river of fire that runs in that guy's heart and, and fire for the right things. And so I'm thankful to be stepping into his place today, although I am a little disappointed that I don't get to hear him today uh, and yet be in Niagara, but I'm thankful to be ministering to you with God's word today. Uh, the task in front of us, actually, if I can invite you to turn in your Bibles, is uh, to the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 1. It's going to be the first of two passages that we're going to look at. In fact, we're going to build a little bit of a systematic theology looking at what I think is a very important concept in God's word. A very important concept, uh, yet also a very important struggle that many of us face. In fact, we're going to be looking at what I think is one of the most invasive, one of the most pervasive, and yet at the same time, one of the most excused things in our churches and in our lives. Uh, It's one of those things that we look at and say, you know what, every one of us does that. We're all kind of guilty of that. It's no big deal. I want to look at God's word, and I want us to see that, yeah, you know what, it is a big deal. In fact, it's, it's, if I can be honest with you, and, and if I could preach to myself this morning, uh, this is also one of the biggest struggles of my life as well, struggling with this idea of contentment versus complaining. Uh, This sin lives everywhere and anywhere. It's in the heart of the child, right, who says, you know, I want more. I want more candy. I want more programs. I want more toys. I want more fun. And then that that child grows up and becomes a young adult, and then they say, you know what, I, I don't like what I've got right now. I want more of this. I want more entertainment. I want more focus on me. I I want more stuff. I want more experiences. I want more clothes. And then that person grows up a little bit more, and they find themselves maybe even married, and they say, you know what, I, I, I want more vacation. We want more stuff. We don't like the house we have. We don't like the car we have. Our children are struggles sometimes. We're not giving them back, but they're struggles. It's in the heart of of the older person as well, this struggle, who says, you know what, I I, I want more health. I want more time. I want better finances, different finances. I want more security. I want more status. I want to be listened to like I was listened to when I was younger. This general lack of contentment drives us in what we spend, it drives us in how we think, it drives us in how we act. The entire advertising world is built on the foundation that you and I and the rest of the world struggle with not having what we want, with not being content with the things we have. The continual drive in your heart to compare yourself, to compare your spouse, to compare your children, to compare your job, your car, your house, your salary with other people and what they have is because you and I are not content with the things that we have. The reason why we become bored and disinterested one microsecond after we buy things is because you and I are not content with the things that we have. So often the reason why I eat too much and sleep too much and drink too much is because you and I are not content with the things that we have. This life that we, and the things that we've been given is not enough. And, and this teaching, loved ones, pervades into the church as well. Uh, the, 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 there's, there's, there's teaching out there within churches that will say, you know what, the gospel is not just that Jesus loves you and he gave his life for you and he offers up for you forgiveness of sins and eternal life in him. And, and, and the gospel is also that you can prosper in this life. That God wants to give you prosperity now. He wants to give you wealth and finances now. This is in the church because so many of us are not content with the things that we have. Think about this just for a second. How much of your time this week 
spent in social media this week looking at other people's lives, seeing where other people went for March break to the warmer places has left you feeling discontented and maybe wanting more. How many of your interactions with friends leave you complaining and wanting more? How many times do you leave church on a weekend service and you say, you know what, Ah, I wanted more than what I got. I wanted different. I wanted something better. How many times have you had conversations just this past week where the person you were talking to said to you, you know what, where I am right now, what I've got right now, my life is perfect. I don't need anything. I don't need anything. Few, I bet. How many times this week have you said to yourself, you know what? I have enough. Psalm 23 gives this great truth for us. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Is is that your reality right now? Where you are right now in this place, is this where you're living? God's word calls out complaining in our lives, this sin that lives everywhere and anywhere. And God's word is good enough to call it out as a sin. Uh, in, in, in Exodus chapter 16, Moses says, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Uh, in Philippians chapter two, Paul picks it up and he says, do all things without grumbling. And then to Timothy, he says, now there's great gain in godliness with contentment. And the writer of Hebrews says, be content with what you have. Contentment. Not complaining, contentment. This is what God's word calls us to. And this is what God's word's gonna call us to this morning. Listen, listen, here's the truth. We must be done with the sin of complaining in our lives. Uh, You know what I wanna do tonight, today? I, I, I want to no longer excuse what God in his word says is inexcusable. What God in his word says, wants to, he wants to be gone from my life. I don't want to say anymore, you know, I'm going to keep that one. I'm going, to con- I'm going to coddle that one. No, God's word says complaining is a sin. It's dark, it's wicked, it's of Satan. And when I grumble in my heart or complain with my mouth or murmur in myself, I stand in direct opposition with God and his person. Complaining is a sin. God hates it, and so must I. So here's how we're going to do today. We're going to build this little systematic theology. We're going to take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 1, and we're going to look at how far, how far complaining will take you into loss. And then we're going to come up the other side of that and look at what contentment can do. And then we're going to go to Philippians chapter 4 and look at Paul's example, and we'll bring the medicine of how we can place this into our lives. And by the way, while we'll be doing this, we'll be building uh, out a diagram that I pray will be helpful to you in examining your heart uh, this day. And and I'll just ask for a little bit of grace as we walk through the text today. Uh, I I have been leveled all week with something resembling a flu. Uh, I am not contagious, but I am weak, okay? Uh, Not that I am complaining about that, of course. (laughs) That's how that begins, right? Not that I'm complaining. I'm just telling it like it is. I'm just telling you the line was long. I'm just telling you how it is. I'm just telling you that that the kids were crazy today. I'm just telling you that my husband is the way he is. I'm not complaining. You see how 
pervasive and invasive and excusable this can be? Let's get into God's word and let's attack this. Okay, point number one in your outline from Deuteronomy chapter one, it's a very complicated outline for you this morning. Number one is this, stop complaining, stop complaining. Uh, From the passage, I wanna show you the horror of complaining and I wanna show you how badly it will take you. Now quickly, and you've been patient with me before we got into God's word, the context is Deuteronomy is the book, is records for us the second time that Moses is gonna give the law to the Israelites after they've been released from bondage and slavery out of the land of Egypt and just before they're about to enter into the new land that's been promised them. This is the second time they're about to enter the new land. The first time didn't go so well as Moses tells us actually in our passage, verse 19. Now God's word. Then we set out from Horeb and we went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. Now pause there. I found this uh, great map that helps you illustrate, understand where Kadesh Barnea is. If I can get that map up. There it is. It's a very helpful map. Um, <clears throat> actually, I drew the map. Uh, you can kind of see the, the, to, the, to the left of the diagram. That's where Egypt, they come out of Egypt. They go down to Sinai. That's where God gives Moses and the Israelites the Ten Commandments. Then they begin to wander through the desert. And I'll just tell you, there's an inaccuracy in my map because there are actually no cacti outside of the Western Hemisphere. So they're not indigenous to this part of the world. But you get the idea. It's desert land. And then you can see Jericho. That's the first city they will take as they walk into the Promised Land. They'll come across the Jordan River. And then Jerusalem is right, right around there. But it's not called Jerusalem at the time. The Sea of Galilee to the north, the Dead Sea to the south, and the Jordan River that connects it. That X is about where Kadesh Barnea is. That's about where the desert turns into the green spaces. In fact, this is what Kadesh Barnea looked like a few years ago. You can see it's got hill country to the side of it and, and, and a green fertile valley in the middle of it. Here's what happens here, verse 20. And I said to you, you came to the hill country, the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up. Take possession as the Lord your God of your fathers has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Pause. Question, why does Moses say, do not fear or be dismayed? Because they're fearing and being dismayed. A a crisis has come. A, A situation has come into their lives where it has broken up the norm, and all of a sudden now things are not the status quo. Something's different, something's harder, something's more challenging than it normally was. In their fear, what's their response though? Numbers 13 through uh, Numbers 14 uh, tells you the paints the picture of the, the, the original account, but Moses summarizes for us in verse 22. Then all of you came near to me and said, "Let us send men before us that we may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come." This this thing seemed good to me, and I I took 12 men from you, one man from each tribe, and they turned and they went up into the hill country, and they came to the valley of a skull and spied it out. What's their response to the the crisis? What's their response to the affliction? What's their response to the fear that comes? Well, I I can ask the question maybe to, to your kids, if we captured them after Harvest Kids today. And I maybe got them, maybe three, four, five, six, seven, eight years old, and I sat them down. And I said, okay, boys and girls, boys and girls, uh, when something challenging comes into your life, 
When you get fear, uh, scared about something, what is something that you should do? And I bet you your kids would raise their hands and say, we should, we should trust in God. We should pray and ask God for help. They get it. I don't get it. The Israelites don't get it. Maybe you don't get it as well. What do they do? Let us send men before us. Affliction, fear, uh, 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 terror, the new situation that comes causes them to send men before them. Look quickly down at verse 30. Moses attests to the facts who's supposed to go before them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you. You know what they're doing? They're sending men to do God's job. Now let me show you this. This is the first step of a, of a diagram that I, that I hope will be helpful for you. Uh, the first step down, uh, if you want to become a, an, an expert in complaining in your life, if you want to turn pro at being a complainer, and, and when you face that crisis, here's the first thing you got to do. You got to abandon the strength that God provides you. In the middle of a difficult situation, when crisis comes, when, when difficulty comes, what you got to do is reject the strength of God in your life. And you got to turn and do it in your own strength. Uh, this is the first step down into the pit. When crisis hits, when difficulty happens, I look to men. I look to the world. I look to myself to solve the problem. My first response is not to seek his strength. My first response is to seek my wallet. My first response is to go into my wisdom. My first response is to ask my friends for help. My first response is to call my doctor. My first response is to lean upon my wisdom and my skills. When a crisis comes, when life isn't working the way I want it to, I immediately look to solve it with my own hands. Do you, do, do you want to grow in complaining in your life? That's the way you do it as well. You reject the strength of God in a situation that becomes difficult. You just say, I'm going to do this on my own. I got this. Look what happens next, verse 25. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land, and they brought it down to us, and brought us word again, and said, it's a good land that the Lord our God is giving us, yet, yet. Yet, you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. What are they doing? Murmuring. That's a great word. In the, in the Hebrew, it means to, to make complaining noises under your breath. Do you know what that is? That's, that's uh, 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 I can't believe this. It's ridiculous. Look at how long the line is. Oh my goodness. I can't believe this. Yeah, kids don't understand me. Kids are crazy today. What do you mean she's always on my case? I can't believe this. No one understands me. I'm just. Murmuring sounds under your breath. What are they murmuring though? Who are they murmuring against? Because the Lord hated us and he wants to destroy us. Step number two, you want to grow pro in complaining? You got to accuse the character of God. You've rejected the strength of God in your life when the crisis has come. You've said, I'm going to do this in my own strength. And when it continues to get harder, you know what you start doing? You start accusing God. 
of what's going on. And you accuse God of being wicked in it. The Israelites accuse God of hating them and of wanting, him, of wanting them dead, of luring them into the wilderness to kill them. Numbers 14, which records the original event of this, it's helpful for us to understand what it is. Let me put this on the screen for you. This is the actual original account of this. Then all of the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader. And let's go back to Egypt. How incredible is this? God, God, they don't even care about us. Look what you're doing to us. Look what you're doing to me. You put me in this place. You've got to get me out of this place. You don't even care about me. I must be nothing to you. No, God, who in his word tells you that he loves you with an unstoppable love. God, who in his word sees you in your desperate situation, who offers up freely the life of his own son so that you might have forgiveness of sins, might have eternal life with him forever in heaven. This God you accuse, you say, God, you know what? It's not enough. It's not enough. I want more. You got to give me this job. You got to fix me, the, fix these kids of mine. You got to give me that toy. I, I got that, that. I need that to wear. I, 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 I want that house. I want more. I want. I want. I, or I don't want. I don't want this trial. I don't want this difficulty. I don't want to wait anymore. God, you must hate me. Or worse, God. You don't even give a rip about me. Proverbs 19 puts the nail right on the head, and it says, when a man's folly, when a man's foolishness brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. When I reject the strength of God in my life and I begin to accuse his character, my foolishness gets me into this place of accusing the character of God. And I want you to notice as well that the Israelites, before the Israelites complaining goes public, it happens somewhere first. Did you notice this? Where do they go when, they, when this first happens? They go back in their tents. They go back and they murmur in their tents. They leave the public meeting and they go back home. Does that sound familiar to you? You leave the meeting, you go to your tents, you murmur. You leave your job, you leave the kids' school, you leave your school, you leave your small group, you leave the weekend's message, and you go back to your tent and you murmur. Wouldn't it be great this week if, if you went home after, the, after this week's message and as God leads you to conviction, you wrote up a little sign and you, you, you stapled it to your doorway as you, as you got in and it says, no murmurers allowed. No mur- and so that way, you know, when, when, when your husband comes home after the big day or when your wife comes home after, after her work day or the day with the kids uh, or when you come home or, or the kids call you up on the phone or friends come over for dinner and, the, and they starts, you, you, you just point to the sign, hey, hey, no, no murmurs allowed. Complaining does not fit with a child of God. It doesn't fit. 
I want you to notice also when you compare the Deuteronomy passage in front of us with the Numbers one that I read to you, how quickly that murmuring in the tent goes completely public. How the quiet murmuring in my house reaches out of my house. How quickly the toxicity that's brought into my tent begins to poison my family, begins to poison my wife and poison my children, begins to poison my workplace, begins to poison the groups that we're associated with, begins to poison our church. This murmuring turns into outright rebellion. Fathers, is this the kind of legacy you want for your kids? Is this the way you wanna lead your family? You want to come home and you want to lead your family by showing them how to complain about the life around you. Mothers, wives, is this the kind of legacy you want to show for your kids? Here's a thing that my wife has never said to me. Catherine's been married for 18 years. Here's one thing that Catherine has never said to me. She's never said to me, hey, honey, when you complain like our children That is such an attractive thing to me. (laughs) You become so manly to me when you complain like that. Maybe your family's different, but I don't think it is. Why is that? Because complaining doesn't fit with a child of God. Wouldn't it be great if this week you had that no murmurs allowed? Listen, would would you be bold enough to love people this way? Would you love me this way? Maybe you run into me in Oakville or maybe you catch me after the service and I'm grumbling about something. You want to catch me and say, hey, Pastor Craig, complaining doesn't fit with a child of God. No murmurers allowed. Well, this is what happens. You accuse the character of God. What what comes next? Uh, uh, Look at verse 28. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and they're fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Do you know who the Anakim are? Do you know who the Anakim are? Neither do I. Nobody knows. I guess history didn't think they were very important to remember. Somebody that nobody remembers was there. Okay, great. Now verse 29. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you've seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Here's the third step. You're going to abandon the strength of God. You're going to accuse his character. If you want to turn pro in complaining, here's the third thing you need to do. You need to forget God's deeds. All of his actions, you just forget them. Moses tells the people, though, look, don't you remember what he's done? Don't you remember what he's done? Don't you remember how he's delivered you from the Egyptians? Do you, remember who, do you know who the Egyptians are? Of course you do. We all know who the Egyptians are. Do you know why that is? It's because for thousands of years in the ancient Near East, they were the global superpower. History remembers the Egyptians. And yet this God has delivered them out of the strength of the Egyptians. And he's carried them in the wilderness, Moses says, every day like a man carries a son. But when you slide into complaining, murmuring in your heart, 
You, accuse, you, you abandon his strength and you accuse his character, you're going to quickly forget what he's done in your life. You will forget what God has done. You will say, instead of look at what God has done, you will say, what has God done for me lately? This is why complaining is so evil, because complaining blinds me to the reality of the gospel, that God is good and he loves me, that God, God has given me things that I do not deserve, and the greatest thing that he has given me is the gift of Jesus Christ, which is far, he is far greater than any affliction I could ever face. But I forget it. I'll forget what he's done. And when I'm in that place, it's a very easy step to get to this fourth place, which is to just disbelieve God's person. Look at verse 32. Yet in spite of this word, in spite of what I told you, Moses says, you did not believe the Lord your God, who went before you in the way to seek out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. This is the end of the line for complaining. It ends in unbelief with God. And the loss is huge, loved ones. You cease to believe in God. You cease to believe that God is there, that he cares about you, that he can do anything. And you destroy yourself with this murmuring, complaining heart. Now, this generation of Israelites would forfeit their share of the blessing. In fact, Moses is talking to their children right now. The children will receive the blessing, but the parents didn't. And there's a big truth for us. Complaining always, always, always leads to great loss. You never gain anything from complaining. You always lose, though. It's like always betting on the thing that will always lose. Every single time, complaining gets you in that place. Well, why is this so bad? You may step and say, well, it's just words. This is just how I was raised. You know, I come from a long, prestigious line of complainers. You know, I complained about the traffic. My dad complained about the traffic. My grandfather complained. About, we're just a long line of traffic complainers. We're just real good at it. Isn't that what it is? Just, just words? Jesus says, no. Matthew chapter 12, he says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The problem with complaining is not my words that come out, although that's a problem. The problem with complaining is the heart that speaks the words out. Out of the overflow of my heart, the mouth speaks. The problem with my complaining is that you can, and you can look at the diagram, is that I say with my heart, you know what? God is not capable. He's not strong. The problem with complaining is a heart that says, God is not good. God does not love me. God is out of control. The problem with my complaining is a heart that says, God, God hasn't done anything for me. And what he's doing right now is not good enough. The problem with complaining is a heart that says, God, is God really even there? Does God even care? I think the reality is, is, that, is that many of us, uh, and I say this in love, I think the reality is, is that too many of us on too many days create dramas in our heads. And I'm one of these. Where we are the main character in the story, and the story is a tragedy, and everything that happens to us throughout the day is always bad and negative. And you and I are always getting the short end of every stick that could possibly be given. 
This is how we frame in our heads. We say, you know, the car is too old. The Starbucks line is too long. The kids are just crazy. The career is not enough. The money is not enough. I'm not getting the attention I deserve at home. I'm not getting the respect I need. My boss doesn't see. My boss doesn't care. My boss is horrible. My church isn't meeting my needs. The guy up front isn't the guy that I like to have speak. All of these things, all of these struggles in my life, and always getting the short end of the stick. It's always negative all the time in my life. Jeremiah Burroughs, he lived about 400, 500 years ago in the middle of England, in the middle of the plague, the bubonic plague. He wrote this, Oh, that we could but convince men and women that a murmuring spirit is a greater evil than any affliction, whatever that affliction. He says this, If I could just convince the men and women that whatever the trial is they're going through, the worst thing about the trial is they're complaining hard in the trial. Even if they're going through the plague... It's worse than the plague because their heart leads them away from saying the truth about who God is. But but today, but today as God convinces us, may the Lord cause us to stand and say, you know what, today though, I'm not going to excuse any longer what God in his word says is inexcusable. I'm not going to do it. God says that complaining is wrong and I need to be done with the sin of complaining in my life. So how do we get out of this? How do we get out of complaining and into contentment? Well, here's point number two in your outline, which is this. Uh, point number one, stop complaining. Point number two, equally complicated, is start being content. Start being content. Now, in every way, what we're going to do is we're going to reverse the diagram that, that we've just built out. Uh, and we've had these four steps that have gone down. And, and what I want to show you is these four steps that go up. So if I could show you the other half of that diagram, uh, getting out is as simple as getting into these, uh, getting out of those lies that you believe is as simple as getting into those believing of those truths. So instead of disbelieving God in his person, I need to believe him. Instead of forgetting what God has done, I need to remember what God has done. Instead of accusing God as character, I need to ascribe to God in his great and glorious character. Instead of abandoning the strength that God provides, I need to cling to and surrender to the strength that God provides. Now, as we walk out of this diagram, what I want to show you is that Moses is going to act as the example of contentment. If the Israelites were the example of complaining, Moses is the perfect example of what it looks like to have a contented heart in the middle of this. Let me walk you through this quickly and let me show you this. The first step up is to believe God in his person. Verse 21. Verse 21, see, see, Moses says, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. This God is the God of our fathers, Moses says. He's the God who called Abraham. He's the God who called Isaac. He's the God who picked up Joseph and planted him in Egypt. He's the God of our fathers. He's going to do this. He's the one who saved Joseph. He's the one who saved us. He's going to do this. Moses understands this. Moses understands this great truth, this great truth that God brings every situation into our lives. God brings the good. God brings the difficult. He is sovereign. God is God. He's ruling over everything. He rules your life. He orchestrates everything. Now, I don't know music, but I do know in music there's something called a discordant note. And if you listen to a discordant note by itself, it just sounds terrible. But discordant notes are placed inside symphonies to to create the, the wonderfulness of a symphony. It makes sense within the whole picture. 
Do you know what I think is happening? So many of us are just listening to the discordant clangs in our lives. We're just isolating them from everything that God has done. We're not seeing that God has placed that discordant note to make the symphony more beautiful in our lives. Uh, most, uh, God's word tells us that, that God brings the good and the bad into our lives. In Lamentations chapter 3, he says this, is not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come. God brings the bad as well, not the wicked. God can't do wickedness, but God is bringing difficulty into our lives. God is sovereign over even this. Isaiah chapter 45, I form the light and I create the darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does these things. We need to believe this truth, church. We need to believe the truth that right now God is orchestrating the things of our lives. That's a great antidote to, to complaining in our heart when we recognize that God has brought even the difficult things in our lives. The truth and the reality that understands that even today, God knows what you're going through. He's the God of this trial also. We need to believe God in his person. And then the second step up we take is we need to remember God in his deeds. Uh, he's the God of our fathers, Moses says, but also, verse 30, he is the Lord your God who goes up before you. He will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you've seen how the Lord your God carried you all the way that you went until you came to this place. Don't you remember, Moses says, don't you remember how he rescued you in Egypt and he preserved you in the wilderness? Don't you remember how he took on a global superpower by himself with one arm tied behind his back and it wasn't even hard? This is the God. This is the God over everything. What has he done for you? What has he done for you? What has he done for you in your life? What has he done even lately for you in your life? We need to remember God's deeds. We also need to ascribe God's character. Look at verse 31 again. You have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. As a man carries his son. Now, I, my picture with my family is a little bit outdated. I've, we've added a third since then, a little boy. And uh, he's still little enough that I can pick him up and carry him. You know that picture, right? Of the kid who's too tired, and you just you scoop him, and you walk with him, and then they kind of do the little head thing against you. Uh, you know, maybe some of you don't have boys that big anymore or that small anymore, but you remember what it was like. Does that image, as Moses conjures up, does that image speak of a God who hates? Of a God who forgets his kids? Of a God who doesn't care what his kids are going through? No, the image is of God picking us up and carrying us like children in the middle of the difficult seasons. Do you remember times like this in your life? Do you have seasons like this in your life where you, you remember that God picked you up and God carried you when no one else was there and no one else saw God carried you like, like, a, like a father carries his son? You know what I, you know what I want to be done with today, though? Do you know what I want to be done with? I want to be done with the, 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 the lies today that come into my head in the middle of the present situation because of the way I feel about the present situation, because of how difficult the present situation is, I begin to judge God based on the present situation. I begin to forget everything that God has told me about himself in truth. I begin to judge him based upon how I feel 
rather than the truth. I want to be done with this today. I want to believe that God loves me. I want to believe that God knows what I'm going through. I want to believe that God picks me up and carries me, that this temporary life is not easy. I want to believe this truth. Maturity does this, though. Maturity lines up the events of our lives. It looks back and says, do you see, do you see how, how God carried us? Do you, do you see how God carried you there? Do you remember how God did this? Maturity gathers this around its table. Children, children, wife, wife, listen, listen. Dude, I know it's not easy right now. I know it's challenging right now. I know the temptation in our heart is to complain about the situation that God has us in right now. But God has placed us here. And God has been faithful. Do you remember one year ago when God did this in our lives? Do you remember two years ago when God did this in our lives? God is faithful. God will do it again. I want to I forget how I feel in the moment. And I want to remember the deeds of the Lord in my life. The Lord says to us even today, you think I don't love you? I carried you out of Egypt as my son. You do think I don't love you, God says to you? I sacrificed my son for you. That you would have eternal life in me. I forgave you. He went to the cross for you. And when, out of, when we come out of this church, when we come out of this, we're able to see, you know what, far from hating me, far from hating me, my God loves me with a great and awesome love. He is faithful. He is just. He is holy. And instead of me accusing God's character, I delight in God's character. I rejoice in the goodness of his character. And then from there, it's a quick step up to the fourth one, which is to just surrender to God's strength. Go up, Moses says right at the beginning of our passage. Go up and take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Don't fear or be dismayed. All you have to do is take it. And then verse 30, why? Because it's the Lord who fights for you. He goes before you. You don't have to be strong. In fact, one of the greatest truths of the Christian life is that you and I don't have to be strong. That you and I don't have to be wise. You and I don't have to figure out the situation. Do you understand this this morning? That God isn't looking for you to be strong in the situation. God isn't looking for you to, to figure it out with your own wisdom and your own smarts. God isn't looking for you to have your own skills to figure out a situation. God doesn't need your wisdom. God doesn't need your skill. God doesn't need your strength. But God does need your surrender. He needs you to say, I can't do it. I need your strength, Lord, for this. I need your skill for this, Lord. I need your wisdom for this, Lord. How do, I, how do I stop this complaining in my life? Uh, how do I lead my sick heart away from murmuring about the Lord and what he has done into gratitude, into thankfulness, into contentment? I gotta pour these truths over my heart. I gotta believe these truths to be truth. When, when the situation tells me, believe your feelings, I need to believe the truth of these words this morning. And lead my heart out of this place of complaining and murmuring against God. But that's really hard to do. I don't know if you've ever tried to stop complaining. That's really, really hard to do. These are the steps we need to take. But we lack the ability to take them. And this leads us to our third question that I want to take us to today, which is this, how do I do it? How do I walk in contentment? 
It's so hard. How, how do I do it? I find myself just sliding down the loss all the time. I forget God's strength. I accuse him in his care. I forget what he has done. And I, I just struggle with, how do I get out of this? For that, I want you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Uh, please, please do turn there. Uh, I promise I'm not going to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 1. I'm not going to do that to you. Um, uh, but I want you to see God's word in front of you for you. Okay, you, you, you see the evil of complaining. Uh, and you see the blessing and the goodness behind contentment. And you want that blessing of living in that place. Uh, how do you do it? If every day is a struggle in your heart, how can you possibly do this? Well, the Apostle Paul, he weighs in uh, from a jail cell. I don't know if you knew this, but Philippians is written from a jail cell. And when a guy writes you from jail and says, I'm content, then we should listen up because he really is. Uh, look, at, look with me at Philippians uh, chapter 4, verse 11. Paul says this, not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. In whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every situation, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's it right there. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Through him. And what Paul talking about the all things? He's talking about fighting for contentment in the middle of a world that so st struggles so many times for contentment. How do I how do I do how do I do all things? I do all things through him who strengthens me. Through him. I don't do all things by recognizing the truth and balancing the truth in my head and writing the verses on the wall and even writing up the sign that says no murmurs aloud. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't balance that, get that, get that ability to do this in my life by getting the accountability in my life and asking my friends and family to hold me accountable for this truth. Uh, I don't do it that way. I can't make those steps by myself. But I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. And now the words of John 15 come back to us as Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. And Paul says, and through him, I can do all things. Here's what I want to do today. I want to, I want to no longer excuse what God in his word says is inexcusable. I want to be done with the sin of complaining in my life. You want to fight this way? You want to fight complaining in your life? You want to fight that murmuring spirit within your heart that always seeks to get more and always not dissatisfied? The only way you do this is the power of Christ in your life. You can only do it as Jesus works in and through you. In every single situation as Jesus gives you strength, you find the strength to fight complaining in your life. Jesus himself says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So seeking and soaking my heart in this truth, the reality of the gospel, placing my complaining, murmuring, grumbling heart in the place of the gospel helps me to fight complaining, because only through the gospel can I vaporize complaining in my life. 
Only through the gospel do I see Jesus as he really is, this God of love who came for me. Only through the gospel can I believe God is who he says he is, the God who sacrifices himself and who dies for me. Only through the gospel can I, can I truly see the works, the great and awesome works of the Lord Jesus Christ, this God who gave his life for me, who placed my sin, even the sin of complaining upon his shoulders, and who suffered and who died and who paid for it finally and completely. And only through the gospel can I fall upon his strength for my life. This God who, if he dies for my sin, can do anything in my life, even breaking up this wicked sin of complaining in my life. This God who can do anything, loved ones, loved ones, the gospel vaporizes complaining in our lives. When you love the gospel, when you embrace the gospel, you cannot complain at the same time. It just can't happen. It just won't work. It leads the heart. It leads the heart to saying, listen, I have Jesus. I have Jesus. What else do I need? The kids can be crazy. My husband may not understand me. My wife not understands me. The work is hard. The house is broken down. But I've got Jesus. I've got Jesus. I'm living for something more. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And loved ones, if the Lord is your shepherd, you shall not want. I can't do it though. I can't do it, you can't do it. The Israelites can't do it. But in Jesus, through him, by his strength in my life, we can choke out complaining in our hearts and find real contentment. And when that happens, grumbling moves to gratitude and, and complaining moves to contentment through him. Let's pray. Lord, help us, please. Lord, help us, please. We can't, we can't do this. The solution to today is not some four-step solution that we need to implement in our lives. The solution to the sin of complaining in my heart today is the one step of running to you and asking for grace and mercy, of asking for help, of asking for forgiveness. God, for the heart that has been exposed today to the, to the sin of complaining, to the heart today that has, has seen maybe for the first time how wrong, how evil, how far, how displeased you are from this. God, I pray that you would lead us to the grace and the mercy that's found in Jesus Christ. Remembering again, even, even, even complaining was paid for upon the cross. God, this, 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 this attitude of murmuring against you just does not befit a child of God. We've been given so much. We have so much to be thankful for. We have so much to be grateful for. We have so much to live for. God, pull our grumbling, murmuring hearts away from a love affair with this world and fix our eyes again upon Jesus, the author, the perfecter, 
Give us great joy in you, Lord. May we find forgiveness in you. Help us, Lord, please. Help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.